Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, full of cloudy dreams unreal. Jump like a Willis in four-wheel drive and living off reds, vitamin C, and cocaine. Trucking, got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking, like the doodah man. Together, more or less in life. Just keep trucking on, on, on. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, I said afternoon. Of course, we normally record at night, but because of some very uh, unpreventable circumstances, we are <laughs> recording... Issues. We are recording in the afternoon. Um, some of you from other parts of the country probably do not know that Texas has dropped into the 50s. Our roads are unsafe, <laughs> and we have to be very careful. I know a lot of people don't understand weather like this. Yeah, we, but we've got to be out of here before the sun sets, or we're really we don't screwed. know what happens. <laughs> One time, it, uh, if it got, got under 40, and they had to... We're about to go fight people at the Walmart for That's bottled right. water and toilet paper. Toilet but, paper. Um, <laughs> that didn't keep us away from this podcast. This is Doug Cooper, your host. I'm joined by your producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Hello, everyone. And also, of course, we have Tony Bangnell. Tony what? <laughs> I have trouble with his name. Tony <laughs> Slang... Schlegel. Schlegel. <laughs> Tony Slagle. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. Tony Slagle. And even though it's daytime, we are in the Vinegar Rune Saloon in North Austin. Old North Austin. Uh, it's every, <laughs> sometime, you know. At some point, people are going to go, do they have to... Do they have to debate where the hell the saloon is every episode? <laughs> what does, you know, we probably ought to explain what a vinegaroon is. Um, oh, yeah. There's an insect. I guess it's not an insect. It's, it's an, an arachnid. arachnid. It's an arachnid, um, yeah. It is uh, found in West Texas, and it looks like a big, ugly scorpion, but instead of a stinging tail, it shoots a foul smell, similar to vinegar, out of its um, posterior end. And it has a whip tail that spreads it about, a chemical, uh, a chemical weapon to use against predators. Now, why does anyone name their saloon after that? <laughs> well, there's pictures from Langtree, Texas, all over this bar. Uh, Langtree's name was once Vinegaroon, and uh, a silly old man fell in love with a British uh, star named Lily Langtree, and he changed the name to Langtree. Uh, 
one of our recommendations would be to watch the Paul Newman film with uh, Jack Lemmon. Uh, what is it? Uh, Law West of the Pecos with uh, Paul Newman. Very, very good you're show. Gonna, you're gonna say who, who he plays? He plays Judge Roy Bean. That's right. That's right. Ju- who is the Law West of the Pecos and also named uh, Langtree? Langtree. He had a pet bear. Yeah, <laughs> what was his bear's name? Bear. I can't, I can't remember. remember. But you can still go there and see the hanging tree and see the old courthouse, and then uh, and, you know, in, get stung by insects and watch your friend throw up. Just a little <laughs> side note: when I grew when I where I grew up in Fort Worth, the Six Flags over Texas up there has a has a roller coaster oh, named after the Judge Roy Scream. Yeah. And I as you get up to that. the as you get up to the very top of the first hill, it says. Um, motion denied or something on it right before you go over the top. So. <laughs> and then in uh, San Antonio, Texas, the historic uh, Pearl Beer Brewery had a uh, simulated uh, uh, Jersey Lily um, courthouse. Oh, really? And uh, the courthouse is also a saloon, which I think is a brilliant idea. I don't know why they ever changed that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, now that we've lost all the Yankees and uh, – <laughs> <laughs> our, our dear Canadians and the Europeans have all d- disappeared. Europeans uh, <laughs> from yep, Jupiter's moon. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all just making fun of my accent. Um, we are talking about uh, the American beauty today, at the Grateful Dead, and we're going to start out. We're treading. We put our um, we put our velvet sold shoes on for this because we understand what we're doing and we want you to understand what we're doing we're going to talk about the grateful dead and there is a chance that there will be some dead heads listening to this podcast and i want to say at the very beginning um we're not dead heads we don't think we are we don't think we know a whole bunch about this band we are not talking to you, okay? Now, if you want to write us and tell us how stupid we are and how many things we got wrong, you're perfectly welcome to do that. And we will take that criticism yeah. as we do all criticism. <clears throat> That's right. And we'll grow from that. That's right. Um, but this podcast is for people who might not know very much about the Grateful Dead. And the reason, uh, well, I'm going to let Tony say while we're doing it, but um, I just want that to go out. We are not in the lifestyle, is the best way to say it. Okay. Yeah, there is a, a, a mystique that surrounds the Grateful Dead that we could not begin to chronicle in any meaningful way. We're not at all competent to uh, get into that. None of us spent years on the road blowing off real life. Yeah, I'm I'm the closest to have gotten to even scratching the surface of that. I think that. you're the one who's actually seen them live. I've seen them live. I uh, my my room my senior year in high school or junior year in high school had dead posters on it. I was dabbling in the dead deadiness of things, but uh, I did not get too deep. Yeah, and I think that the best way to describe, you know, my approach, I, I had a mild interest. In the Grateful Dead, growing up, I had heard about them. Uh, I knew some of their songs, but there was just really nothing about the Grateful Dead that intrigued me. That said, there is a point in time where the Grateful Dead, I think, made some excellent music, and luckily, we're talking about that one of those albums tonight, or I should say, this afternoon. Um, anyway, I, there's there's something. There's, this is one of those 
lifestyle bands where when you become a deadhead, it's it's to me it looks like a religion. Yeah, well, um, I think it. I think that's pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty close. I can't think of any other thing like this except for um, parrot heads, uh, the Jimmy Buffett people. Yeah, and they're not on the same level. We're not comparing uh, deadheads the grateful, to parrot heads. <laughs> the Grateful Dead to Jimmy Buffett in any way, except. For the fact that they have this lifestyle element, yeah. So I, I'll just add this. Tony, yeah, yeah. Both bands. Why are were... we listening to this band tonight? <laughs> uh, well, Doug, after doing uh, after doing um, the Big Country album and, and and forcing you to talk about the mid the mid eighties, I thought we'd get you back in your comfort zone and go to nineteen seventy. This is probably smack dab. Uh, this is another five. one. Yeah, this is another album from the nineteen seventy seventy one period. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're like half of our podcast um and it's also one that we that if tony hadn't have picked it somebody else would have picked yeah it soon. I, so here, here's here, i'll tell you why i picked this album so there is a little bit of that where did this come from when yeah. we're talking about this sure. particular period of the dead but there's also a little bit of where did this go as well because they didn't stick around with this for very well, long i was hoping somebody could answer that tonight yeah um, today <clears throat> So, you know, this is this album's considered uh by a lot of people as their crowning studio achievement. It's certainly my favorite album of theirs. Uh I never get tired of listening to this. It's one of those albums that if I'm mm-hmm. not in the mood for it and someone puts it on, I'm done. I got I'm just going to sit down and listen to it. I it's not it it's 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 something that I enjoy almost every spoiler alert. Uh, you're going to probably wonder well i'm gonna rate this album at the end of the podcast um it's got a, a weird uncanny ability to make me feel happy and melancholy at the same time yes, yes. and sometimes certain songs just a song will have that ability to do that uh it's tuneful the vocals are fantastic the instrumentation on it is fun and it's interesting the lyrics are thought-provoking it just all makes for one heck of a fantastic album and finally it really hits me in that sweet spot of that cosmic American fusion of rock and soul and country that I like. Mm -hmm. And while the dead didn't, you know, most certainly didn't give birth to folk or country rock um, or Americana, I'm going to quote Tyler Mahan co when he's talking about Buck Owens in the, in the Bakersfield sound while they didn't give birth to it. They most certainly uh, were in the delivery room. (laughs) And, And that's what he says about Buck Owens and this album really establishes them as regardless of what they do after working men's dead and American beauty establishes them as pioneers of that genre. I really think it does. Yeah. Um, so for all those reasons, uh, I picked this album. Um, yeah, it's just, I'm really looking forward to talking about it tonight. And if I recall correctly, this is one of the albums that when your pick was announced, there was, uh, great rejoicing all around. <laughs> I don't remember any groans. No, no, no groans. But I do think, uh, just to lay the groundwork, I do think you and I, Doug, have uh, we we both have a, a. I think it's honest to say we love this album. That's true. I think uh, JM. I think JM's in immense like with it. Um, yeah, I think but, that's a good way. To, but uh, I think you and I are both going to have a hard time not falling all over each other talking about it. Tonight. Well, the songs really fit what they were capable of doing they never really got outside of their their comfort zone um in, on this album and i think i, that, I, I think for what the grateful i don't think dead, the grateful dead has a discomfort zone i don't though. think they do either 
I don't think they do it, But for what they can do, for the, for the way that they play, and and the I way think that you're they saying sing, their area of competence, their area of competence, exactly, uh, the area of, of of competence. I think that this is the best album that they could have made, and they they saw an opportunity, they grabbed it, they and it was conscious. They you know it was largely Jerry Garcia's idea. It came from his bluegrass background, his Americana background. And I think that he was able to take the band, push them in this direction that just made for an absolutely brilliant couple of albums, Working Man's Dead and this one. I think this one is the better album, not by a whole lot. This is, to me, this is about the best the dead could do. I want the living. I think, I think, I think, um, I personally think this band is un- unfairly disparaged by people who aren't deadheads, and I think they're un- uh, I, I think I think they're o- they're overblownly lauded, if that's a term. I think by they're those overblownly lauded. Yeah. Those who are deadheads. Um, I think this band is more than competent in what. I'm, in fact, I th- there are parts of this on this album where I'm like, God, th- these guys can. They know their way around their instruments. Um, I, I think- don't. I don't hear people say anything but yeah on that. Uh, I don't think, I think that they're was saying a little I, bit anything. I don't that. think that they're okay. Another thing that I'm going to say, everybody that's listening to this podcast knows that I am a naysayer. No, <laughs> that, that the band needs to be the, the rhythms. <laughs> the rhythm section needs to be in the pocket. <sighs> and these guys, there's even an interview with uh, Bill Krutzman where he says on this album, in Working Man's Dead, these two albums is where he realized that, oh, they expect me to stay in time. Well, you know what? I'm happy that Phil Lesh is not only out of the pocket, but he's dancing as far away from it as possible because <laughs> that's that makes for much more interesting listening to me. Well, yeah. I'm I'm going to uh, bring us all together because <laughs> you know, I'm about peace. And, um, I'm sorry, I don't I, mean to laugh. What's so funny about peace, right? It is... If this album were tightened up, it would lose me. It, it would, would lose, lose me, me too. too. Yeah. And if I'm a, this is this is too uh, fat of a, a, a segue highway to to resist. If these guys sang better, yeah. Um, if you put uh, the Beach Boys, Cosby, Stills, and Nash <laughs> singing these songs instead of the Dead. I'm going to lose a lot of interest really fast. I, me too. I, yeah. And I think, and we can talk about this later, because I do think it's worth talking about the vocals and what they do. I think part of the charm, and I think that's the right word for it, the charm of their vocals and what's really captivating about them on this album and on Working Man's Dead is these guys didn't really know exactly what they were doing. No, they that's didn't. Exactly and so that. that's the thing that I think makes this album so uh, immediate. Uh, pleasurable. It's like there's. It's like harmonies around a campfire. Yeah. And these guys are singing, and it is. It's it's captivating. Yeah. It, it's but you know you're. It, there's nothing sophisticated about it. But that's again it's, that's part of its it, charm. It, it's it's endearing for the for the purpose of it not being pristine. Mm-hmm. If um, I mean for the reason of it not being pristine. We've, we've already talked about harmonies that give the album a signature sound when we talk about the harmonies of the moody blues they are immediately recognizable mm-hmm. one 
one note of Moody Blues in harmony, and you know who it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same is true with the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. It's it's very unique, yeah. immediately recognizable. I've I've got something that this will help explain how I feel about the limitations this band has and what a benefit they are to this album. I want you to imagine the Eagles covering this album. (laughs) And bring in in the wrecking crew to to do the uh, plan, and you still... This this would be an album I wouldn't put on. And uh, that's the magic of this record is... it's it's not tame yeah uh, that's that's a it's, wow it's shaggy it's a shaggy yeah, both album. of those are really good uh yeah. and that and and just to be clear that is not disparaging the musicianship of the album by saying either of those things oh no it's just it's just embracing the looseness of it which but is really what so but one of the things that was going on during this time if you listen to the new writers of the purple sage are tight they're they are right on they are doing that kind of uh well um, new writers of the purple sage in particular there, it, it is just like a, almost a buck owens kind of buckaroos clone and this album has again that's what why do you, you there's a lot more deadheads and there are you know new writers of the purple sage heads and it, because i think that's i think they call them sages sages <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with where they came from before they got here. If you're if you're into you know exploring and and improvising and doing these long f- freeform jazzes or jazzes jams, uh, it, it's I think it's going to be difficult to rein that all in, even if you're playing a little three and a half minute song. Yeah, I had this uh, cassette and. Um... There's one of those you stick in the car and you just leave it there uh, because it's so good. You don't mind hearing it over and over again. I thought the whole time I was listening to their Greatest Hits album. <laughs> and and there's, o- there's only one single on the whole album. I mean, right. there were other songs got right. Ra- ra- you know, we're talking about a time period in radio where other, stuff, yeah. other stuff was being played other than the singles. I'm guessing it's just based on the quality of the songs in it. Well, and and the fact that they're all so accessible. Yeah, yeah. And you you hum, I mean, you hear. I I've been was, singing um, "Boxer Rain" for weeks yeah. now. It's they're just the kind of they're and and this isn't. I don't mean this to disparage the record, but they're like commercial ditties that you. You got the tune right away that stays with you. Mm-hmm. So I spent a, a long time thinking this was a greatest hits album. And then then I assumed, well, this must be their first album because there's so many bands that save up five years right. worth of <laughs> yeah. tunes and they dump it on their first album. And then uh, that's and then uh, this is their sixth album. Sixth album. Yeah. Sixth Man's Dead, Dead was their fifth. Driving that train. Cocaine, 
just crossed my mind. It's everybody sort of lumps Working Man's Dead and American Beauty together as a as a sort of one-two punch, and we can do it a little bit for the purposes of this. Um, but I do think there's a distinction between the two that we should talk about as well. But so prior to Working Man's Dead, the 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 Grateful Dead had released three studio albums and a live album, and they were considered probably considered the most quote unquote psychedelic act of the yeah. Bay of the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. They were experimental. They were eclectic. They were fundamentally improvisational when they played live. Um, they're studi- what, what makes a band psychedelic? Well, in their case, I think it was the substances that were being consumed around the performances. Well, if you listen to some of the ways that the, the, all of a sudden lyric or vocals would become. think that what was going on in the uk at this time to me is what i would classify as more psychedelic than what the dead was doing the dead was they were they were free forming it but it wasn't quite the the weird sound loops and stuff that stuff like pink floyd were doing you know right. um anyway not to and, and that again another another title that we always um seem to say yeah no when we when we <laughs> uh, when it happened with uh, with Moody Blues and the Zombies, yeah, the people, uh, the if you look at album covers, the Dead should be psychedelic. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what happened. So, album names. So so they so they released three studio albums: the Grateful Dead, which was '67, '68, Anthem of the Sun, which is a great album title by the way yeah, for, a for a late album. '80s album, yeah. and then they're they're six, late what? I'm sorry, late, late '60s, 60s album. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Oh geez, sorry about that. And then, and then sixty nines. Uh, oh, got it. Let's see. Aoxo Moxo. Saint Stephen with a rose in and out of the garden he goes. Country garden in the wind and the rain. Wherever he goes, the people all complain. Aoxo Cotton. It's a yes. Aoxo Moxa. It's a what is it? Anagram. Yeah. Anyway, those albums were you know for lack of a better term, sort of avant-garde, if you will. Uh, lots of sonic noises, and as JM said, they'd, do, they'd put weird effects on things. Um, the problem with those albums is they were trying to... They're trying to squeeze their live sound into a studio, and they just were not able to do it. Yeah. And so Everything those- I read makes it sound like they were very contemptuous of the studio and absolutely in love with performing live especially yeah. jerry garcia i think yeah. it had to do with the confines of what happens in the studio and i mm-hmm. think that's the thing they couldn't do they could not quite get it so what's the solution well their fourth album is called live dead released in 69 um while it was still not as commercial success it at least sounded like what the dead wanted to sound like on yeah. on vinyl <laughs> things start to happen things start to un- unravel a bit um administratively for the band after uh Aoxo Aoxo Moxoa, or however you say that album, is released. That album was really expensive. I think it was close to 200 grand. Did anybody get an understanding of why the record companies continued to put these records out? They weren't paying for themselves, were they? No, they were not commercial successes. I, I think they're on Warner Brothers. Yeah. Warner Brothers, for some reason, they're, they, it they, keeps coming up. They give the, they artists, give the time. artists time. 
Um, yeah, and I think they had development uh, contracts yeah. with, with bands. So you would so, s- sign up for like 10 albums and you, you know, at the end of that, they would decide whether or not they were going to drop you, but you could drop, you could produce as many albums as you want. And, and they, they were a very artist friendly record label. But after the, after the third studio album, which I'm not going to try to butcher again by saying they were, they were uh, in debt to the label for 180 grand. And then to add, again, add more insult to injury, their manager at the time, who was Mickey Hart's dad. Um, Mickey Hart's one of the drummers. Drum, for the, drummer for the band. Yeah. Uh, There's two drummers for this band. But... Anyway, the, the manager for the band, Lenny Hart, who was Mickey Hart's dad, uh, evidently renewed their contract with Warner Brothers without telling the band about it and then absconded with, I don't know how much money, he just skipped town with a bunch of, bunch of chunk. A bunch, a big chunk of the band's wealth, and his so, son's in the band. Well, yeah, but this was oddly enough, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it. This was his last studio album for a little while. He re- rejoined the band later, but he, he was kind of, and again, I don't know the whole history of the band. None of us do. Can you um, imagine your father putting you in that situation? Yeah, unless well. you're involved with it. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, so what's the solution here? Uh, all of that's kind of sitting around uh, in their heads when they go in the studio to do Working Man's Dead. Uh, and uh, Jerry Garcia, who's you know, by default, I guess, kind of the leader of the band, um, decides, let's try to go in and make something simple and make something cheap. And he, and, and in an interview after both of these albums came out, Working Man's Dead and uh, American Beauty, he says that he, he felt like they'd outgrown their pretentiousness, his word, not mine. Um, and they weren't an experimental band anymore. They didn't want to go down that route. So they just felt like at the time they felt like, in, again, a quote of his, a good old band. And he didn't want to spend the rest of his life making records that were too effing weird for anybody to listen to. <laughs> so they go back to their roots, right? So, uh, what does that mean? Well, Jerry, Jerry Garcia was, um, started off in bluegrass bands, jug bands, yeah, uh, folk bands, banjo was his, banjo was his instrument. Yeah. Um, Bob Weir, who met Jerry Garcia when he was 16, was also bumming around the folk scene in the Bay Area. Um, Ron Pigpen McKernan, who was uh, who was the uh, I guess keyboardist, but also the at the time the band formed was their main lead singer, yeah. and their harmonica player was a, from the a blues background. Um, and those guys were sort of the base of the Dead before Phil Lesh. And uh, who who's the bassist uh, joins and we, we can skip him and Bill and Bill Kritzman and Mickey Hart. Those guys join a little bit later, but the the three main guys were kind of from a very solid based American music. They weren't so yeah. On. And you know Jerry Garcia played with Robert Hunter during in those days. That's how they met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a and Robert Hunter was. A, bass a bassist, yes. So <laughs> anyway, he had, he had another talent that makes up for that. He does. <laughs> so so anyway, long story short, they decide to go into the studio for Working Man's Dead, and they're going to make an album back to their basics. But it's in, that particular album is also uh, influenced heavily by the Bakersfield sound, which yeah. was also happening at the time. Although slowly, well, I listened to a lot of Machine Gun Kelly. Um, I'm not familiar with the Bakerfield sound. Tony, who else is included in that? Well, probably the most famous person in the Bakersfield sound is Buck Owen. Don't know me, but you don't like me. Say you care less how I feel. But 
streets of Bakersfield. We're enamored with the Bakersfield sound. And, and Jerry Garcia said, yeah, I can write an album that has that, but we're going to have to do some rehearsing before we actually go into the studio. So this is from the documentary that I watched recently. This was the first album that they actually rehearsed. You're talking about Working Man's Dead? Working Man's Dead yeah. and American yeah. Beauty. No, you're right. You're right. And and that's something that I think gets lost in the lore of the dead. Uh, I didn't see the documentary, but I, I uh, if you listen to a lot of the outtakes from the 50th anniversaries of both those albums, yeah. you can hear them working stuff out. This wasn't just these guys came in and want, winged it. Oh, yeah. They were working you know? on the harmonies before. Yeah. They, they, it was, they were just Bob Weir and uh, Jerry, Jerry Garcia are just sitting there with acoustic guitars working out harmonies with the rest of the band. And, and uh, Phil Lesh is, I think he's sitting there with, you know, plays some piano, um, trying to figure out the harmony. Well, and then the other the other thing that sort of um, gets them going is in 1969, Jerry Garcia buys a steel guitar, and uh, Boy, and he sure starts he like starts taking it on tour, and playing it live with some of the more country influenced Dead songs at the time, and he just that he becomes obsessed with it to a certain extent. Um, it got pretty good too. He plays oh, he plays the the steel part on uh, Teach Your Children. And, and uh, the still part on Teach Your Children, I think that's the only part of the song anyone needs to bother listening to. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing I want to say about this is this, while this, it's hard for the three of us, we talk about this a lot, to think about what a sea change this was, especially for dead fans. Yeah. Um, this wasn't that different from what other bands were doing at the time. The Birds, we talked about them earlier, had already embraced country. Uh, you, you, you had the band had released two albums prior to the, these two albums coming out that were hugely influenced yeah. a flu, an, an influence on these two albums as well. Even across the pond with uh, the the Stones were putting on. Some of bring them. the Stones up for Jam. What is wrong? With you? I'm in a good <laughs> mood. And about him, I was in a good mood, and you have to bring up the Rolling Stones. Let me let me ask about the sea change. Okay, where do clownfish live? Where do they spend their time? Where do they chill? As the kids say. Sea anemones. Sea anemones. So here's what I'm thinking. The, the dead are a clownfish, and the LSD jam uh, acid test is their anemone. And they leave the anemone on these two albums. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think you're I can right. see that. Well, 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 thank you for trying, uh, yeah. Tony. <laughs> no, I can see that. The, the other, the, but the other important thing that we haven't talked about in terms of the influence on this band is Robert Hunter. So Robert Hunter, I mentioned the band, the band band, yeah. uh, you know, Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, that band. Uh, they had released two albums and Robert Hunter loved them. But, and he thought, man, I could do something. I dig where they're going in terms of their, their kind of their aesthetic with this going back to basic stuff. But he also felt like everybody and their brother is doing this whole, I love the South thing. I want to do something different. I know the West. So I'm going to start writing songs about the West. So that's what Working Man's Dead started. Those songs are about 
railroads. Yeah, they're about the West. Yeah. Um, but it's that same it's that same sensibility of this kind of returning to the roots, bringing in yeah. uh, country influences into rock and roll. It's because if you think about it, it really is kind of flipping on its head. What was rock and roll? It was a, a it was making country music louder and faster. And now these guys in the early seventies, the bands we talked about, are kind of flipping that on its head a bit, bringing it back to where it was. Did you see how Tony left the blues out of rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I, t- I forgive you. I was just very productive. I just you know, if you hear "That's All Right, Mom," I guess that is a blues song, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Blue Moon of Kentucky is not, but anyway, yeah. uh, despite having the word "blue" in it. Yes, uh, and then and then the other other sort of thing that we can't can't forget to talk about in terms of an influence on this band wanting to go a certain way is their studio mates at the time were Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And those guys, and they just cross-pollinated a lot. And those guys were already steeped in that. I mean, you know, Buffalo Springfield was a band. I think uh, Deja Vu came out right before this. Yeah. And, uh... Jerry says that, you know, you, they could hear him in the other studio. Uh, and he's like, oh, we, we could try to work on that a little bit. Maybe we can make ourselves sound as good. So, um, so yeah, this was Working Man's Day was the first of these two albums that were real acoustic heavy, country flavored. Um, the, the first ones to have any real commercial appeal. I mean, these albums got played on the radio, which was a shot. The, the record company almost fell over themselves when they heard Working Men. So they were oh, my God. We got, we got songs. <laughs> uh, we got songs. Holy cow. Plus, I think it cost it only. Well, how much did Working Man's Dead cost? It was dirt. It was like 15,000 bucks to make or something like that. It was dirt cheap. It was dirt cheap. And um, they made it. They knocked it out in like two weeks or something. Yeah, I think this one was three weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's 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 a bizarre story. Say, oh, y'all want some radio play? <laughs> Let's see what we can do. Oh, boom! Here's what six songs that you can play on any FM uh, well, yeah. rock I, station. I read somebody said if you weren't a Dead fan in 1970, too bad because they were all over the place. I mean, having released two albums back to back, they were all over the place. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's kind of the foundation going into at least musically going into recording this album we're talking about tonight, American Beauty, there were some other issues. Both Jerry Garcia, Jerry Garcia's mom was dying at the time. Phil Lesh's dad was dying of, I think, prostate cancer yeah. at the time. Um, so that was, that was some heaviness going on uh, with the band. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, focused kind of the, what, what they were trying to do um, as well. Yeah. And, and pig pen, um, was killing himself. Was killing himself and start. He was a co- he was kind of like the Brian Jones of the, the Grateful Dead. Again, bringing it back to the Stones, Ugh. but he was being kind of marginalized. He wasn't. It, it wasn't. The, the, it wasn't a conscious thing by by the band. It was much more Pigpen doing it himself. He was just not as present. He didn't quite. He wasn't playing keyboards anymore. I think he was just I, playing harmonica. I think that had to do with their. He was a blues guy. I don't think he knew what to do yeah. with this weird psychedelic jam stuff. I think had he survived much past this, he would have and had been in good health. I think he would have flourished. And who knows what the dead would have sounded would, like after. And this. he was hanging out with uh, Janis Joplin, and she was uh, a good influence. Yeah, they were. They were not good influences on each other. 
But they also, uh, and we'll talk about this when we come to trucking, they got busted in New Orleans and, uh, uh, you know, was also pretty heavy because they weren't certain what was going to happen to them in terms of jail time or anything because it, it was a pretty big deal. That happened early in 70, and I don't think when they went into the studio to record this, that had been cl- quite cleared up yet. So um, anyway, all of that stuff was weighing on them. Uh, and, and like any good hippie, yeah, I think they, they decide the song. Yeah. It, 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 the, the album compare this to working man's dead and this album, this album's a little bit heavier. Well, just a little bit, but that's not, I mean, that's not the only distinction. The other thing is, uh, in terms of the sound of this album, their supporting cast is gone. So the, the, is this a train thing? No, this is the medicine ball caravan tour. Oh. Which was, which was, I think, hindsight was it was a studio trying to cap- capitalize on the whole um, uh, Woodstock thing, but move it around places. Uh, yeah. So all these guys go on this tour, the supporting cast of the dead, who they're typically in the studio with them. So they don't have that. They have one guy, a brand new engineer, not the their current, not the producer that they'd had in the past, um, who was their regular producer. Um, they get this guy named Stephen Barncard in, and he's the sole voice of reason, bouncing ideas off these guys' heads. So, uh, so the production, I think, of the two albums sounds different as well, to me at least. Um, this one has more overdubs. Uh, the vocals, I think, are much more layered sound. I mean, it's all good stuff. I think it's all great. Um, it's it's slightly yeah. more produced sounding to me, which again, I don't have a problem with. They're guest musicians. Yeah, there's a lot of oh. guest musicians on this band, and they add, they add to this so to the sound nice. of this this band tremendously. David Grisman, yes, and then and then this is a Working Man's Dead. I think was the first album Robert Hunter was quote unquote an official member of the band in the sense that he was writing lyric most of the lyrics. And for this album, it wasn't just him and Jerry Garcia. It was him and Phil Lesh. It was him and Bob Weir. They get him and Pigpen. They get into yeah. a partnership that really gives this album a, a different kind of dimension to it. Yeah, we just talked about uh, Robert Hunter, who wrote the lyrics. I, I'm going to go ahead and insert now. These are some of the finest lyrics that you can find on any record. Uh, the tunes are great, and the lyrics are great, and the reviews of this album are great. All Music Guide five. Uh, Pitchfork, 10 out of 10. Rolling Stone, 5 out of 5. Sputnik Music, 5 out of 5. Rolling Stone, for my opinion, has this album way too down the list on their top 500 albums. Rolling Stone does a great job of getting it right and getting it wrong. Yeah, they do. And they're all over the place. Sometimes I'm really impressed with what I read from them and um, other times I say fire that guy. <laughs> just and just real quick and I don't want I just want to mention as well that it's uh we talk about this from time to time and it's important here that uh another component of this album is a studio they recorded in. I don't want to bore anybody a whole lot with it, but it was a, it was a fairly new studio in San Francisco called Wally he- Heater Studios when they recorded American Beauty and uh that studio is responsible for Albums by Jefferson Airplane, Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young was recorded there. They did several, or two, I say several, two Creedence Clearwater albums. They did a Birds album, both Graham Steve Parsons. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Both Graham Parsons LPs there, Tupelo Honey 
was recorded there. Is so, that right? Yeah. So this is this isn't some fly by night studio, yeah. um, and uh, and and there was a the musicians were hanging around all the time. So that also had an impact on uh, the they, sound of this. They credit uh, the interpollination. Yeah. How do you say cross pollination? I'm sorry, ladies I and mean, gentlemen. Warner Brothers music at the time was just they were cross pollinating quite a bit with their with their artists, and it was just a it was a great time to be on that label. I think. Um, All right, so we were about to start playing music and shut up a little bit. <laughs> um, this is another one of uh, these albums where, oh, that's my favorite. Um, you mean you, you, the song plays, you're like, that's my favorite, the and next song the next plays, one, you're like, oh, oh my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I struggle with that too, but I do think I was able, I, I forced myself to pick a song just to I have a I song. I my song, yeah. So. All right, well, tell, <laughs> us, tell us when we get there. I will. Um, the first song is a box of rain. Look out of any window, any morning, any evening, any day. Maybe the sun is shining. Uh, I I used to think this was a weird way to start. Um, I thought Sugar I Magnolia would be. The, I think it's still a strange way to start. I don't. I would put Friend of the Devil uh, first on one on one of the sides, and Sugar Magnolia first on the other side, and that would be for money making uh, purposes. Yeah. But I think this is a perfect. Let's open the door and welcome you in song for this album. Um, it's kind of heavy for the first song. Yeah. I, this is this is this this is exactly what I was talking about earlier about a song that brings me happiness and sadness in the same, you know, four minutes or whatever. Yeah. This is this is a song that's um, about Phil Lesh's dad. He he, uh, it's got an interesting history to it. So Phil Lesh was his dad was dying of cancer, and he would drive to visit him, and he had worked out this tune while he was doing it. And he, um, and he brought it to Robert Hunter saying, Hey, I need some lyrics to this. Now there's two alternate stories to this. Robert Hunter said that Phil Lesh told him, I need a song that I can sing while I'm driving to my dad and kind of put my feelings into sharp relief or whatever. Phil Lesh says he just offhandedly mentioned that he'd been singing this tune while visiting his dad and that's all it took for robert hunter to take the song regardless the song is about phil lesh's dad dying regardless of whether phil lesh told robert hunter to do that or not um and and it came and and the cool thing about it i love when robert hunter's like phil lesh just handed me this song it had all like the it was tunefully or musically completed all i needed to do was add lyrics to it um yeah, and and while it's a song about death and it's heavy, it's also uh, there's something about it that's got uh, hope. Like there's hope in, in ingrained in this song. It's it? it's celebratory and uplifting in a way that a song about death shouldn't be. Yeah, it's just transform. It it just it, it sucks you. The song sucks you in, and then just even the title, "Box of Rain." I mean, it's just like it sounds like an E E E Cummings kind of phrase you know and, and we talked about they use capitals it, we talked about that earlier that uh box of rain is the earth robert yeah. hunter said it was the earth but ball of rain didn't quite roll yeah. off the tongue and i agree with him box of rain yeah. is is Much it's better. a 
it's poetically so much better than ball of rain. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who believe in the flat earth, um, a box would make sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think, around Tony, you talked about how this is uplifting and uh, a little bit, it's a sad song. Um, I think what, what occurred to me is the thing that makes death of a loved one sad is all the things that are wonderful about having a loved one. Uh, and this song has both of those. Um, mm -hmm. If having people you cared about wasn't such a wonderful, magical thing, their death would mean nothing. And yeah. uh, this song pulls those two notions together. Uh, yeah. It's it's wonderful how they're uh, he's uh, trying to he's trying to help and he's at the same time asking for help because yeah. he doesn't know how to. No, help. that 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 yeah. is such a poignant line that that line in the you know in the chorus about what do you want? Yeah, me what to do, do you want me to do? It's like this plead. You know, he's yeah. there to help, but then he's also at a loss. I I think you know just because of what exactly what you talked about, Doug, is he's he's he knows that this is this is there's an end to this yeah. you know and that that sort of frustration that you get like i, I there's not anything i can do um, and often it's the first time you realize how wonderful a relationship yeah. was yeah. yeah is when it's about to end um no i think i Which all the girls i've ever broken up with feel that way <laughs> so go ahead jam i'm well, sorry okay, okay. So there's a part in the song where i don't know if y'all have noticed but it's there's an unusual it just kind of does a stop start and it's that line that goes, feel your way, yeah, feel, feel your right. way like yeah. a baby boy. Yeah. The lyrics and just the way that they do that stutter in the in the middle of the song just makes it interesting. And, and it, it just almost breaks up the song, not in a bad way, but it, it, it just it's like the second part of the song is starting again. And it's uh, feel your way like the day before, not oh, like a baby boy. Okay. Just to, feel I didn't want way. the deadheads to start screaming Sorry, at us yeah, for now. We got them in here, like um, the day before. And just this idea of you know the the whole all the concepts in this song about uh, it's all a dream we dreamed one afternoon long ago. You know this idea of I, I don't know. There's just again, it's weird. It's to me at least, and I want to say this for everybody because I think this is a dead dead thing to say is that for me personally this song is sad and happy at the same time which i think is exactly what you're touching on doug when you're losing a loved one there's this joy of having known this person but the sadness that this person will not be a, a, yeah. physically a part of your life anymore um this my favorite story about this song is when phil lesh talks about getting david nelson and dave Tol tolbert to come in and play on it because he didn't want the song to sound like a Grateful Dead song. And I saw an interview with him. He's like, even though it's on a Grateful Dead album, I don't know why I felt that way. But so uh, Dave Nelson plays electric guitar. Dave Tobert plays bass. Phil Lesh plays the acoustic guitar on it. And Jerry Garcia plays the piano. So yeah, they kind of move stuff around. It's really cool. And, too. and it really... I mean, it's on a dead album, so it sounds like a dead song to me. But I, I at the time, maybe it didn't. I have no idea. <laughs> so this, this to me is the the epitome of what I don't like about the the Grateful Dead is that the drumming is too busy, oh, the, the rhythm section is too, I mean, the bass is too busy, even though it's not Bill Lesh playing it. But again, it 
it works on this song. It, 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 it's it's like a band playing it for the first time, and it's just all coming to, together, and they haven't worked out the kinks yet. And that's what it, that's again, it's what kind of keeps it. Um, I want to say pristine. It's like it, they haven't it hasn't been sullied yet by any sort of studio tricks or a producer getting hold of it. Well, how about this little tidbit? It was the last song they played on the very last live show that Jerry Garcia was a part of. Oh, really? July 9th, 1995, Boxer Rain was the last song that Jerry Garcia played live yeah. with the dead. Well, this is this is definitely one of their best songs ever. Well, um, I I would just summarize if if you don't like this song, you're uh, you're probably a horrible person. <laughs> I I don't always agree with you when you say that cuz I know it's done for humorous effect, but you know what? I'm going to double down on that. I agree, Doug. The next song gets, uh, I guess both these songs get radio play now, but this one gets quite a bit of radio play. Uh, this is uh, a friend of the devil. Sit out, run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. I love this song. I can't listen. It's a very playful song. I can't listen to the song out loud in my house without dancing around my I house know, singing. It's, it. it's, it's next to impossible. And it's just got the, the lyrics are so playful. The the It's a showcase for David Grisman and uh, Jerry Garcia's abilities to just uh, do that kind of bluegrass sound. Uh, and it's Jerry Garcia's voice on this is so, so good. Oh, it's fantastic. And the funny history about this song is it wasn't even supposed to be a dead song. It was supposed to be a new Writers of the Purple Sage song because uh, Jerry was playing steel with them at the time. And as you'd mentioned earlier, Robert Hunter was a bassist and they'd asked him to come play bass with them. And he's like, well, if I'm going to play bass, I need to bring a song. And he'd written this song, four verses of this line out. And so they get to they get to a rehearsal and they're re- rehearsing it. And um, they're working it up. Uh, uh, Dave Dawson plays a few lines uh, or comes up with a few new lyrics uh, and uh, they kind of work it out, but they record it so they can work on it later. And at the time Robert Hunter was living with Jerry Garcia, he comes home and depending on who you talk about or talk to or hear, tell about it. Robert Hunter says that when he got back, Jerry Garcia begged him to play it. Uh, Jerry Garcia says it was just sitting. It was the tape was just sitting on the, on the kitchen table and he picked up and listened to it. But regardless of that, Robert Hunter goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning and he hears the song. He's like, that sounds familiar. And Jerry Garcia had worked it out in a way he thought made it better, including coming up with the bridge. Yeah. The bridge um, is almost a separate song. Yeah. And, uh, and at that point, the, at that point, the guys in the new writers of purple sage said, well, this isn't our song. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a whole lot we can do about it now. Um, um, you know, so, but, so you, you hear Grisman and you hear, uh, Jerry Garcia playing on it and, and, and Jerry Garcia's vocals are incredible. The rest of the song, the backing is so sloppy. The rest of it is just so like Phil Lesh's. I love the bass on this song. I'm just going to say I'm cutting you off, Jam. The bass on this song is fantastic. Doug, come on, back me up on it. (laughs) Well, I, I don't think it matters. I know. Um, I agree. I'll I'll tell you what. I want you to close your eyes and imagine Waylon Jennings singing this song. I love Waylon Jennings, but you can't. He can't 
sing this song with his huge voice because no. it's the wrong character. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's just. Or imagine Mick Fleetwood and John McVie playing the rhythm section behind it. It, it, it wouldn't be. But, the same but thing. I, that's, that's, not, I, I don't know. I, I don't think Phil Lesh's bass playing is sloppy. I love it. It's, it's, it's exactly what I want in a bass, which is it, it plays a little ditty. I love when the bass kicks in on this song. It's fantastic. I, I, uh, okay. I'm not going to say that it's fantastic. <laughs> it's I'm fantastic. not going to say that I say love it, it but I'm I not, love it. I'm going to say, I wouldn't change it. Um, I wouldn't play it. I, I wouldn't change it. This, it, uh, it, I, I, Want to emphasize how important Jerry Garcia's vocal, sweet, yeah. thin yeah. voice is for nice. this sort of vagabond, ne'er do well, but nice-hearted yeah. guy. Um, yeah. Any if somebody came in and like, imagine a bad company with a big voice <laughs> coming in, it would be all. Well, friend of a devil is a friend of mine. And, and, and it's funny when people, you, you get online and you read about people, what people think about the song and they throw in the whole Robert Johnson thing or whatever and they're missing the point about what this guy is talking about. A friend of, he's talking about these, these people out there who are, at least this is my interpretation, these people out there who are uh, able to provide various temptations to him. They are the friends of the devil, and they're a friend of mine. I don't think he's saying that in a positive way. I think he's talking about, look, this is what happens. I get, I get, I get sidetracked by things. Um, yeah, he's, he's a victim of uh, temptation. Yeah. He's easily temp I've never thought. I've had a vague thought in my mind of something like that, but never as as clearly articulated as what you just said. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and 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 the other thing is, and it's not like the devil. We're out. No, we're out. Uh, yeah. uh, with our, uh, our long hair and our leather and our motorcycles and, and skulls, <laughs> and we don't care. And, uh, we got pentagrams on the back of our jackets. It's not. It's not that. No. It's. It's like uh, you it's know, talking about his weakness. Yeah, and anybody oh, yeah. who's able to provide him. A way to imbibe in his weakness is a friend of the devil. Yeah, yep. you know. And that's, I mean, a, that's that, great that, interpretation. That, well, if you think about that line where he says the devil gives gives him twenty bills, and then later on the devil <laughs> takes it away from yeah. him because that's who it is. Anybody who's and willing to to kind of help him along this path to destruction is a friend of the devil. <laughs> and the devil made him do it the first time. <laughs> and then there's the verse he re he repeats twice. He's got I I got two wives in. Well, and Sherry, yeah. here's the th funny Sherry, thing about that. He's got my child that you don't, you don't look, look like, like me. me. It says it. He says that twice. Um, here's the thing about that. So evidently, yeah, I love this kind of stuff, and maybe it's boring to people, but people try to figure out well, what does that mean? What? How can? How can somebody? You know, when he talks about Reno and Utah, he's like, how can that be? So this is what people say: the song takes place in 1860 when Reno was part for a year was part of the Utah Territory. Huh. And so it was also polygamy was also legal then. Ah. So then you got two wives. Uh, you know, people might be reading into that. I'm mean, Robert Hunter was obviously literate. So so well, and also um, that kind of stuff happened all the time because yeah. you can't do a a search on the internet and find out that you know, she befriends him on Facebook. As right. He, as an but, aside. I, I, I think I think it's very believable even with like one courthouse is not going to check with the others. Right. That's why you have to say in the uh, 
Book of Common Prayer. Does anyone know a reason these two can not be lawful words? And they used to speak have now or, over, or forever hold your peace. They used to say that part outside of the church. Well, because it was it was necessary. <laughs> okay, up next is uh, Sugar Magnolia. Sugar Magnolia, blossoms blooming. That's all Indian. I don't care. So my baby down by the river. Is this not? Is this? This isn't my favorite song either. But is this not easily the most instantly instantly accessible song on this album? For the longest time, this was my favorite song because of that. Bob, when Bob Weir's voice kicks in, it's so kind of booming and different than what we've heard before. It's almost like everything his when when he first comes in. Yeah, everything. There's the. The whole uh, the the groups playing, they're they're all singing together, and then all of a sudden you just hear Bob Weir's voice kind of just bubbling up. up. It's it's clear, yeah. like like uh, usually voices aren't clear uh, on, on this record, yeah. but his comes through his clear. Comes through it's so good. it's uh, f- acrobatic and uh, yeah, uh, it's really impressive. And acrobatic if you ever watch him, him uh, if you ever watch him perform live, you'll never hear him repeat this. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I never have. Uh, but his voice is fantastic. Yeah, on it's this. great. It's great on this. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's another brilliantly written song. Absolutely, it and it's essentially a an ode to the fair sex. <laughs> well, um, it, and it's another. It's the same character as in the last song. Yeah. This guy is heavily dependent upon her. Yeah. <laughs> she she, uh, yeah. she can jump like a Willis in four-wheel drive. <laughs> She's a summer love, spring, fall, and winter. She can make happy any man alive. I mean, it's just wonderful. Well, then you got, and you got Garcia's pedal still playing. Oh, oh. It <laughs> yep. makes this song. So it is adds this sort of drone kind of quality to it. Is that, so... Like, here's my question about that. The way the song starts off, it's got a sound I quite identify. I can't quite identify. It's a great start. But what is that? It's just the guitar. That chugging kind of. Well, the guitar's. He's playing a bar chord and sliding up. Yeah, he's going from the one. He's going from like a seven to the one. Okay. So he starts off. uh, Boom. Boom. The, uh, I think the bass is probably helping with that sound yeah. too. Maybe, yeah, but yeah, to mention the steel on this song is whoo. it makes the song. It really well, does. And, and and the funny the funny thing ah, there I am again. The funny thing about the steel on this album is uh, Jerry Gardi- Garcia does things with it that are unusual. Yeah, and they work so well. Yeah, they 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 don't get out of the the country idiom, I guess, but they. They still do just do something that a lot of country artists don't do with their pedal steels, and just kind of uses it as a as a flavoring throughout the throughout the song, not as a, a focal point. There's he doesn't even take like real breaks. Yeah. In it, yeah. You know, it's just like he just hits some sort of I want to. There's a as a chime I want to put in somewhere. Yeah. So I'm just gonna uh, put a little. I'm gonna do a little harmonic on my my pedal steel. So. This song, it's funny, Doug, that you mentioned uh, his performance live because I'm guessing you're saying this is better than anything you've seen him do live. The singing, yeah. yeah. So uh, when they started doing this live, he turned it into sort of a ball, yeah, balls out rocker, if I can say that. Um, and then they added a second, like a second jam section to it. Uh, 
<laughs> of course, called sun. The, the jam section is called Sunshine Daydream, which I think is funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, this is the second most second most frequently played song in any of D- Grateful Dead's set list. Well, it's a fantastic. I, when I saw them live, they played it. So I would have played it every I'll, show. I'd I be disappointed had. if I didn't get to hear that. Uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great tune. I'm surprised it, it hasn't been covered a thousand times. Yeah, well, yeah, because th- this is the one song that could lend itself to doing some. You could somebody else could do some. I, 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 I I'm, I'm think sure be some uh, one of these people in the horrible country music stations sure would do magno. it well, the other thing about this is um <laughs> this is a thing i keep coming back to phil lesh's bass is so busy i love this. it i know it almost sounds like i'm he's a playing, rush fan i love busy bass I know, what can it, I say? It, it sounds like he's playing guitar on it's like there's three guitars going on this Besides the acoustic, but they don't step on each other. Like I think the Grateful Dead sometimes does, but they're. I, I can see that. I, I can see that they that that idea they said. You're right, but uh, I I love the busy bass playing on this this album. I, I JM talks a lot about people being in the pocket and uh, how how much he likes that. And uh, I, I I think Jim, you're a dear dear man, but I don't think I agree with you all the time on that. <laughs> I, um, I, I like hearing. Well, I love Ed Whistle all over the place yeah. playing. Uh, well, and like as, I said, as, 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 as though he has a solo every second yeah. of of the song. Thunderfingers. <laughs> anyway, I accidentally said nice things about bass playing, and I'm sorry to the audience out there, uh, especially those of you who wanted to drink. <laughs> all right, up next, operator. Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need. So this is Pigpen's sole lead, um, sync vocals on it. I like this song. A lot of people don't for some reason. I don't know why. And I'm not a blues guy, but whenever I talk to you guys about blues I like, it's this it's the country blues stuff. This song is right in my wheelhouse. I really like this song a lot. I do too. I I, I really do like this song. I I forgot that it was a Pigpen song when when I uh, and he's and and it makes sense that early on he was kind of their main vocalist because you can hear it on yeah, this. The guy's good. got a voice, and and the other it's got it's full. It's uh, it's it's different than the other two. It yeah. is. So there's a history in 20th century popular music of a guy kind of sp- spilling his guts to an operator. <laughs> you know, well, I think well, the most the song that most Jim Croce. Well, Jim, I was going to say. About, well, I was going to say this is the most Jim Croce sounding song on the album. Even though, it, but it does not sound like Jim Croce's operator, right? But I mean, I'm thinking. I was thinking, but the thing that comes to, to mean to mind is like uh, is Memphis by Chuck Berry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a history of guys calling an operator and kind of saying you got to help me out, and then using them almost like a surrogate therapist. You know, that, um, that's yeah. true. I didn't think about that. Uh, so it's it's so, yeah, it's a, a weird trope for how to put a playlist together. Yeah. Well, this was the only <laughs> song that Pigpen wrote. And sang, yeah, on a Grateful Dead album. And uh, it's it's a I think it's a good song, but it's immediately apparent that Hunter didn't help with the lyrics. <laughs> well, and, it's yeah. a pretty standard. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's it, there's nothing that really grabs you as wow, what how original and inventive. Yeah. Well, and it's a song that they dropped. Uh, well, it may have something to do with Pigpen's health too, but they dropped fairly quickly from their set list. But so, I, I don't like people disparaging it because it's a good song, a good song and it fits the album very it's, well. It does. Uh, he, he, and so we've had four songs 
Four different singers. And writers. No, I guess Sugar Magnolia had... Uh, hunters on both uh, of those. Well, the hunters on all. I, I didn't mean that, but um, you have a very democratic, spread out band with uh, a lot of input. Yeah. And that that's not common. Yeah. Well, I think that fits this band's sort of just philosophy in general. Think of another band that uh, doesn't care about their fans bootlegging them. And just, there's just this whole sort of, you know, we're just, yeah. they didn't know what they were or, doing or but... something put something into them that makes them not care <laughs> about stuff. They just, it just seemed like this whole band's history is nothing but stumbling and they just stumble into something or good in good directions. Yeah. All right. Candy man. Look out, look out, the candy man. Here he comes and he's gone again. Pretty lady ain't got no friend till the candy man comes around. I think this is a weird way to end the side. It's a weird way to end the side. It's a long, slow burn, this song. You know, and I used to think that this song just plotted along but um the last couple of weeks when i've been listening to it it, it, it my mind has changed I, I, the band seems a little tighter on this i think that's one of the things i noticed the last few times i've been listening to it but garcia's that, that vocal that that warbly tenor that just comes through it, it, what's this, this song is, about if it's not about drugs, I don't know what the hell. I it's think about. it's about drugs. Although some people think it's about a guy who's a womanizer, but I don't. Uh, you read too much into it. I think it's about. It's definitely about a, a drug dealer. Yeah, but, um, but Garcia is just struggling to get the words out. On so maybe that goes. Well, that. we we can't skip talking about the steel solo in this song. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, is it? Uh, you want to talk about bizarre, surreally? Mm-hmm. It's like a surreally plaintive, almost psychedelic steel solo. And it's, and it's if you listen to it, it's uh, it's buried. It doesn't. There, there's so much that's going on on top of it. it it's it's like the only thing that's being brought but, up is the high end. On yeah, it. It, but it sounds unlike. I, I defy anyone else to sound to play or find a steel guitar in 1970 that sounded like this steel guitar does on this yeah. song. And then it's got a set. It's got H- Howard Whale plays the organ on it. It was a, a session guy who actually ended up playing with Garcia on some other stuff. But it's a. I mean, it is a weird way to end the album. But it's a good song. Again, I don't hate any songs on this album. In fact, I don't not like any songs on this album. It sounds like Candyman selling quaaludes. Yeah, because it it's dragging. It's it's, it's, it's I, I get a picture of a guy with one dead foot. And he's <laughs> Pulling along, and that's, yeah, that's not to say there's not that's not to say there's not interesting things happening, but you you've come off a pretty bebop side of music here, yeah. Um, yeah. and then, <laughs> but I I like it. Um, uh, yeah, I I I could see I don't I don't see it uh, screeching to a halt as we've talked about some other songs doing on some some other albums, yeah, but I, I can I can get somebody going like feeling like this put kind of pulled them out of the album for a little while yeah all right uh speaking of friends um there we all interact with one another and when you do some something you don't know how it's going to affect other people it's like throwing a pebble in a in a pond in a pond yeah. it's like a ripple in still water it's like a ripple in still water ripple in still water 
When there is no pebble tossed No wind to blow Reach out your hand If your cup be empty Let's just summarize this real quickly. If you don't like the song, you're a horrible person. This is... This is my favorite Grateful Dead song of all time. Again, I cannot say that that is a bad answer. It's not my favorite song on this album yet. We haven't gotten to it yet. But this song is... Oh, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's a, a masterpiece. Ma- this song is a masterpiece. There and is- again, you don't need the music. You could uh, type this up, stick it on your wall, and people could just read it and yeah. be blown away by which the poetry does it of blow it. your mind that the lyrics to this and the next song were written in an afternoon in London? <laughs> just scribbled down in one afternoon. <laughs> I don't get it. I I don't just, get somebody's it. got a different brain than I do. That's for sure. Yeah, Robert Robert Hunter talking about this song says it's 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 got the line he's the most proud of, which is that reach out your hand if you if your oh, cup be yeah. empty, if your cup is full, may it be again. That sounds like something that was not made by the hands of man. That sounds like something from the Bible. I I was about to say it sounds like Ecclesiastes or something. I love the the imagery. I love just the the overall sentiment. Um, It is. This is. It's similar to Boxer Rain and the feel. And he and he even said that it wasn't lost on him that those two songs were were used to start the sides of this album because they both have water as as sort of a cornerstone of what they're talking about yeah and he and they both have the same kind of sentiment as well um well, so when yeah, we he, get to the end of this record i'm gonna make my uh attempt to say the common theme that runs through it and uh we're, yeah. we're very close to it here um I I, I I i as always find the stories behind these songs fascinating so evidently bob weir had just bought a custom guitar that he'd, he'd gotten made for himself and Jerry Garcia picked it up, and he said this: the tune just fell out of it. He just picked up the guitar. It does sound like this shit. This and then it just fell like, out of it. Yeah. And then he had, uh, at least the melody did. And he said he went up to Robert Hunter and said, hey, I've got this song. And Robert Hunter said, oh, I've got these lyrics, and handed him Ripple that he'd Whoa. written in L.A. And he's like, what the? So he's like, this is just one of those songs that was destined to happen. Wow. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. And there is a road, no simple highway between <laughs> the dawn and the dark of night. Yeah, it's, if you go, no one may follow. That path is for your steps alone. Yep. And then you it, got Grisman's mandolin just well, and, through and this was the song he was hired or asked to come in and play on, and he ended up playing on uh, Friend of on the Friend Devil. of the Devil as well. Yeah. But this was the song Garcia's like, I want him on, I want Mandolin, which is genius because yeah, it works so it well. Works. Stephen Stephen Barncard, the uh, Barncard, the uh, engineer slash producer, uh, talks about. He says one of the most memorable things that happened is at the end during the sing along part. A bus pulls up. Well, not literally, but just a bus full of people come in. They're all the extended dead family. Oh yeah, and they, they do that live. Pack them into the studio, and he mics them up, and they just sing that last wow. single. Wow, wow, that's, that's cool. Is, yeah, that's so and it works. Most of the time, that stuff is. Um, yeah, you 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 regret it, but it, yeah. it works on this album. It's because this is a a universal anthem of. Yeah. That that uh, there's not. So, you can't take sides on this song. Yeah. There's, there's not the anti-ripple contingency out there that <laughs> I disagree with this or this or that. So that that brings me to something that I as we're talking about several years ago, there was a video posted on YouTube that is 
a bunch of people all over the world oh, and oh, they yeah. parts, doing parts of Ripple. I saw and, them do that and, with the weight. Yeah. And it is, it's, it gives me, I can't, I'll be honest with you, I can't watch it and not get a little teary watching it. It makes me boohoo. Jam, this is two times he's, he's stepped yeah, on he's your, my, my boohoo. Um, I we'll mean, po- we'll thinking about, that, I'll we'll be post honest, that video on our website. I just think about this song and I, I almost, a little, I get a little, it's not melancholy. It's just like there's, there's just well, a sweetness. No, again, this. again, it's got that, that ability to make you feel sad and joyful at the same time. It's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. It's the same exact feeling for Boxing Rain. Box yeah. 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 And, uh, we talked about you spill what you carry. Yeah. And Robert Hunter is spilling something common yeah. on these two songs. And again, uh, Jerry Garcia's voice is extremely important. It is. Uh, oh, God. Because I, I can think of all the people who could screw this up with with uh, a powerful voice. Yeah. Up next, Broke Down Palace. On my hands and my knees, I will roll. So, this is my favorite song on the album. Really? I kind of figured, I was thinking this was going to be your favorite song. It's the most bird, sweetheart of the rodeo sounding album, or or sounding song on the album. I think it sounds like the band. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do too. But, uh, yeah, this, this song to me plays like a Grateful Dead spiritual uh, I, I, I love the. I, I'm a sucker for that imagery of using the river as something that kind of washes your cares away. Yeah. Uh, again, talking about Jerry Garcia's voice, it's incredible. It's it's perfect. Let me put it that way. It's perfect for the song. The harmonies on the song are great. Um, it, it evidently was pretty heavily influenced by Garcia's mom's, uh, you know, death. Yeah. Uh, the piano playing on it oh, is yeah. just remarkable. Beautiful. And again, it's that weird juxtaposition of being sad and uplifting at the same time. I, I it's I don't know how to describe that. It puts me in this weird space where you feel like you want to just cry, but there's something that makes you joyful listening to it oh, as well. It's the, the the harmony. This is I think where the, the their harmonies are just they actually they work. They're again they're These not are the sophisticated, most, but polished harmonies i think of uh i shall be released yeah yeah it sounds a lot like that yeah but but uh, there's there's also just something about the lyrics flows um well that's because it's robert hunter yeah going to leave this broke down palace on my hands and my knees i will roll 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 make myself a bed by the waterside in my time in my time i will roll and just the way he sings that Oh, the way they sing it. The way they sing uh, it, yeah. Ah, uh, it's... Uh, uh, hmm. Yeah. The fact that they can all sing that line together. Um, Jerry Garcia's fills are so subtle throughout this song that, again, it's another thing that you... Like, had they not been there, this song would not be as lilting or as... Um, wouldn't grab your attention the way that it does, but he adds his guitar playing adds so much to the song and the piano again, the, yeah, you, you mentioned the piano, the piano part is just, yeah, it's like I said, it feels like a spiritual to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're talking about another song about death, aren't we? 
I think so. I think so. I don't, you know, like a lot of Robert Hunter's lyrics, you're like, that's, that's what I get out of it. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. It's a guy, the Broke Down Palace is obviously, you know, this mortal coil to a certain extent. Yeah, you know, Robert um, Hunter is just a, a an enigma. He does not like giving interviews. He does not like being photographed. He doesn't like really. Well, he's not with us spotless. anymore. I think in 19 is when he died, wasn't it? Yeah. 2019. 2019 I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. I yeah, the guy is an anomaly and 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 a genius. <laughs> and a genius. I mean, he is. He's, he's... Well, I think it's perfectly acceptable for someone to uh choose that as their favorite on this record. Yeah. Um till the morning comes. Till the morning comes. Uh, this is the most rocking song on the album. Okay, if you're going to ask my opinion about how it was executed. That's what we're here for, Jane. <laughs> That's kind of what we do. I wish the drums were louder. I wish they were more in the pocket. Um, I hate that damn pocket. Can I say that? I want to sew that pocket up. I, well, yeah, since they're out of the pocket, you seems like you'd like a drums quiet. <laughs> <laughs> This is 1970. Drums were, they were kind of an afterthought. They were just something that were just supposed, they were just supposed to keep time. And so you got these drummers that were just bored out of their skull and they would just do whatever the hell they wanted, just as long as the kick drum kept them on measure, it kept them in, on beat. And a lot of times it wasn't even the, they, they still had guys working off click tracks and stuff. I'm, I'm going to guess there wasn't a click track on this album. <laughs> there probably wasn't. Um, but this is, I don't know, this, this isn't my favorite song. Well, I, I have, I have two questions for you. The first is that the, when the song starts off, that beginning lick that, that is that a guitar or the steel? I asked myself that today. I think it's a guitar. I don't think it's I, a steel. I don't know. I don't think it's a steel. I think it's a, a, a guitar. I think it's Jerry Garcia. Um, that sounds like a guitar to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sophisticated enough. I'm not a musician. I, I, well, I'm I, trying I, to picture somebody making that noise with a steel guitar, and it's hard to imagine. Yeah. Well, he does some weird things with a steel guitar. He sure does. I'm he not, does. But and I'm um, not going to say I know. That's odd that you asked me that, because I was, today, just today, I was asking myself, what is that? And, and do you think, do you think... Uh, it this, sounds like fingers going like... It does. Yeah. Um, this song sounds the most Crosby, Stills, and Nashy to Very me. Very much. Very much. Yeah. Um, and it's fun. It is fun, although... And and, I, and you don't have to drill down very much. No, it's not exactly the most PC song on the album, but that's okay. It was written in 1970. You know, it's so surprising because when I, when I look at the title, Till the Morning Comes, you know, I think of like a, uh, you know, like a, a Robert Frost poem. No, he's talking a, about A Night of Loving. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure this is like on his honeymoon that he's. <laughs> that would be what I would. He almost, he's made, yeah, he's, he almost made Jam spit beer all over his mic. Is Jam drinking this early? <laughs> <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, we're at Addicts of My Life. No tongue can know.
this is the um, most beautiful song in her in her canon. I think um, it's 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 just a beautiful song, regardless. I mean, the harmonies really work here, um, and those harmonies have some sophistication to them that some of the harmonies don't on other songs on this. The, these two songs sound like um, they had lunch with Cosby, Stills, Nash, and Young right before they recorded. Well, but the, uh, the reason I want to talk about the vocals on this is because in an interview, Bob Weir, <laughs> I'm laughing because he attempts to explain how they recorded their vocals. Um, he's kind of a little bit all over the place. But when he's talking about Cosby, Stills, and Nash, he talks about how when they would layer stuff, they're sort of singing the same thing, just separated by you know octaves or whatever the dead because they didn't really know what they were doing would slip in and out of each other's right things and then they double tracked them too so this is six this is six deads singing on this or on most of the the vocal harmonies and and they they wouldn't always be right so it gives this otherworldliness to them as this Mm -hmm. kind of yeah it is very yeah yeah um very uh, yeah, so it, it's uh, it's just kind of funny listening it to him talk about it. It makes a pleasant sound. It does. It does. It does. And the, the producer uh, slash engineer says, I don't have any idea where this song came from. He, he, he uses a term, it's choral magic, is what he said about it to describe it. I think for a friend of the devil, um, Sugar Magnolia and Ripple, I feel confident talking about that, but... Um, because I, I think those I, aren't very, you, uh, you, they're not very hidden. You read the lyrics of this and you think, well, is it is it about a guy? I mean, it's it's interesting. He's talk, uh, the thing that struck me the the most unique about this is, um, well, it's a weird thing for them to harmonize on. Have y'all ever thought about that? Add it in the attics of my yeah. life, like. But so this is what I was going to talk about. So. You would think the natural flow of this is when I had no wings to fly, you flew for me. Yeah. But that's not what it says. And every line is like that. When I had no had no wings to fly, you flew to me. When there were no strings to play, you played to me. That's what's striking to me. I don't know. That's it's it's uh. Well, we got to figure out: is he talking about a woman or is he talking about a god? I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I don't think Robert Hunter will know. I bet there's some deadheads who have <laughs> spent months on acid con- contemplating this that can bring well, us insight when, we don't have. When, when you put it that way, I'm sure they're willing to get online and write us a little ditty about no, it. No, they can say, well, I'm 60 now, but back in my day. Okay, now There's we move on to, uh, I guess, is this the dead's most famous song? I think uh, you, this is the most dead song Grateful Dead song that there is probably in existence. But it's got their That's not Dark Star. Well, Dark, Dark Star is the most well, dead song but it's, ever. It's the one it's got the line in it that everybody What a long quotes. strange trip it's been. Trucking, got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking. Like the do dog man together. Oh less in line. Just keep trucking on Yeah, that's the well, that's the line most associated with the band, I think. And it's too tempting for any novelist or uh, 
biographer or filmmaker to resist. But it's the most straightforward song because it's essentially biographical about the band, you know? Yeah. It's very biographical. And uh, it's another one filled with what what seems effortless lyrics. It doesn't sound like anybody worked hard on this. And then you're just blown away how... um, how great the lyrics this are. Is, well, this Houston's is, too close to New Orleans. Well, you know why he said that. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I got busted. Had a little bit of trouble in New Orleans. Yeah, they had a lot of motivation for putting themselves um, some distance between themselves and uh, New Orleans. Well, so do we want to talk about that briefly, what happened? Yeah, we should. So in, uh, in, in January 1970, they're playing a show at a place called The Warehouse, and Fleetwood Mac was opening for them, actually. Um, and so... Uh, they they uh, get to their hotel rooms to find the police are already waiting for them. Um, they had a warrant. They'd already searched the rooms when they got back. And and here's what's f- interesting: the manager at the time, who was Mickey, Mickey Hart's dad, said that he firmly believes that they were set up. Um, that like a bowling pin. Yes, <laughs> that there was not that the stuff they claimed to fi- find in the room. While it was there, nobody has any idea where it came from. And every, every member of the band, except for Pigpen and uh, Tom Constant, Constantin, who was the keyboardist who left immediately after this, every one of them was, was included in the bust. Pigpen was a drinker, so, you know, that's why he wasn't, I'm assuming. Yeah, and he um, was the one who died. He, he used his uh, drunkenness as an alibi. I don't know why he wasn't, uh, why he wasn't part, part of the bust. Um, he may not have been around. But um, I'm sure somebody can correct me on that. But, uh, yeah, and this was hanging heavily. It was eventually all the charges were dropped and everything. But this wasn't the first time this had happened. I forget there was a band. Might have been Jefferson Airplane were playing in New Orleans prior to this, and they were also busted by the New Orleans police. I don't want them hippies coming in from California. That's exactly, I think, what the deal was. The big easy isn't so easy if you... They don't have a problem with you drinking. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we're, we're uh, now talking about a bunch of things we don't know very much about. No. Yeah. But, but uh, that, set up like a bowling pin is a great line. It is. Yeah. I don't it know is. if that's a colloquialism somewhere, but, but it's, it's so good it should be a colloquialism. Yeah. Well, and, and this was Jerry Garcia's favorite song on this album. The quote from him was, uh, the Birds, CSN, Airplane, all of them had had hits. So, F it. I want to get one too. <laughs> so that may be what the deal is. Cause this was a hit. Um, yeah, this, this was their big, their big hit up until, uh, touch of gray, which I think broke the top 10. Oh, it's their biggest selling album ever. Right. Um, but yeah, this hit 64, number 64 on the pop singles chart. And I'm pretty sure touch of gray broke the top 10. Yeah. I, you know, I like this song. Um, it's not I, my favorite. Well, you know what? Again, I don't know how much of it is that I've heard it a gazillion times. So it's like, okay, when this song comes on, I don't, I don't skip it because it's, I when it's on, I want to sing along with it and kind of bounce around. But I just it's don't, a fun song. I don't have it. Is. It's a bouncy it's, it's, song. Again, it's got that attitude uh, yeah. that well, life's happening to me again. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to the end of the album. I think that's a pretty good way to end an album. Yeah. Uh, for me. That ending that way sounds like um, it's like the end of a movie uh, where you know a sequel is <laughs> going to happen. Uh, it's impossible that there won't be a sequel. So, a couple of things to finish up with. 
I think this is a pretty exceptional album cover. Oh, um, yeah. I think the art in general for everything Grateful Dead, whether it be merchandise, it's a funny that a band with this attitude has so much merchandise uh, for sale. I, I wonder if the band actually ever saw anything from <laughs> well, it. Well, and they, they have a history oh, of yeah. fantastic album covers. But Blues for Allah may be one of the greatest album covers of all time. With That's the a great album name, uh, with the uh, with the skeleton playing the fiddle, sitting up. I mean, it's such a it's an amazing album cover. Well, I mean, this band was a eventually became a merchandising juggernaut. It, yeah, they became a, 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 a it's like Star Wars, <laughs> but but they became a corporation. But again, they would have thousands of people out in the parking lot selling bootleg knockoff stuff and nobody cared yeah and so they started recording their actual album their their concerts and when the internet happened they you could actually download their concerts for money and so, put the bootleggers out of business. my, my brother-in-law has a wall of cassettes that he got the got the old-fashioned way of dead really? cassettes he's a deadhead i guess at a point it becomes just like a collection where well I, I gotta have that, or I, someone else will have it. Well, guys, well, uh, you, you you didn't talk about the the name of the album on the album cover, American Beauty, and we have some extraordinary American Beauty. Of course, is the name of a rose species, right. uh, which is why we have so many gardening clubs that listen to us. And uh, <laughs> in the uh, the word beauty also is reality, reality, yeah, and. Uh, I think that's probably an accident, and they tried to make that sound like uh, it was <laughs> I, a, a very, really deep thing. Yeah, I didn't know. I, until today, I did not know that that I, was... I, well, that, I, the guys who made the album said it was on purpose, but you're right. I think that I think there's probably a little bit of... Uh, well, that's my motto, you know. That you're right? No, whatever happens, ah. act as it was as though it were intended. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> that's... Uh, so when I was a program director uh, the, for a camp. I'd always say, whatever happens, act as though we wrap, it. Wrapping this up, this album was not quite as initially, wasn't quite the success its predecessor was. Um, Working Man's Dead, I think, peaked at 27. This peaked at number 30. But it is, in subsequent years, I think significantly outsold its uh, predecessor. predecessor. In fact, when it was re-released a couple of years ago, I want to say it might have even topped the album album charts for a week in like 2020 well tony thank you very much i had a great uh couple of weeks me too um, listening to this this is this there's two kind of albums we do ones where i force myself to listen and ones where i force myself to stop listening <laughs> but for me this was just a a a pleasant rediscovery of an album that i have i have always kind of put Sort of on the back burner. Go, I, I know this is a good album. I've never really paid much attention to it after like three or four listens. But this was being being required to listen to it for uh, two weeks. It's been uh, a very big surprise. I, I was singing a lot of the songs, walking around or running or whatever. So, All right. Well, JM, I'm going to go right back to you. All right. For your review, for everybody in the audience, we do a review of how we liked the album personally on a uh, on a listener uh, level. Then we have the cold-hearted critic, uh, and um, 
that rules the night. And that's where we try to unplug from uh, from what we feel and what we like to yeah. to to uh, try to narrow it down to how how good it is as a piece of art. Okay, so as a critic, I'm going to give it a five zero. I this is the Grateful Dead at the height of their powers. Um, this kind you can't get more of an American album, an iconic American album. You can't get more American than this album. My personal rating, um, I'm going to give it a 4.0 and it has, because I think the songs are amazing. I think that rating could possibly go up if I keep listening to it the way I was listening to it the last couple of weeks. Um, again, it's the thing that I've said about the Grateful Dead before. They're a band that has a, a great um, set of songs, great canon of songs. Uh, and this is finding them at their, the height of their powers. Um, but the execution, they just execute their songs not so well. And I, there's times when I wish this album were a little bit more constrained. I wish it like the word I le- used um, earlier was uh, hairy. I wish this was a little bit smoother, but um, again, it's, a, it's definitely going to be an album I listen to um, more in the future from doing this podcast. Okay. Well, I'm going to go next since uh, Tony's the chooser. Uh, I would, as a critic, I would give this album a five because of a question and the question is if this isn't a five what is and <laughs> i'm unprepared to answer that question uh, i love you know, i'm a lyrics guy and these are as good lyrics as you're going to find on on any record and i love what uh may be described as a little bit sloppy um but i'm a sucker for that this uh there's a lot of albums I like because they haven't been polished, and this is one of them. As a uh, as a listener, I, I think a four four eight, which is high, um, and I only say it's not a five because it it's it's an album I love. I don't think it's one of my top ten, but it could be if I sat down and thought about it. This album, I don't think they set out to have a theme on this album, but I think there was a theme rolling around in Robert Hunter when this album was made. And I think it, this is going to sound silly because it's so broad, but I think the theme of this album is life. Uh, I think more precisely, it's the sweetness and the sorrow of life. Um, I think it's about the end of life, uh, but uh, I think that's what he had in his mind. And... He does a great job with with the topic, and I think it pulls the whole thing together in a way that probably wasn't intended. Now we go to the picker, not the nose picker. No, nope, not the cotton picker. Um, I, I I like what you said there at the end, Doug, because that may sum up why this album makes me feel sad and happy at the same time. Because it's this idea of the sweetness of life, but also the understanding, especially what was going on with Jerry Garcia's mom and Phil Lesh's dad, that that's not that it's finite, you know. 
And so I, I, that's, I think, very, very on point. Uh, I think you're probably right about that. Even if Robert Hunter wasn't willing to uh, vocalize that, or maybe anybody still left in the dead, I think there, I think that that's a, a valid way to look at it. Uh, it's hard for me not to just say ditto to what you guys said about the album. That I don't think there is an album that. So I'll say the two questions is if this isn't a five, what is? And if this isn't the quintessential American album, what is? So I would say as a critic, a five. Um, when we decided to do this podcast a year ago or so, five albums immediately came to mind that I wanted to talk about. And this was one of them. Um, so I, it's a five. It's, it's a double five for me. This, this is one of my, easily one of my favorite albums. I, Oddly enough, I had not listened to this album in probably three years. <laughs> I don't know why. I think probably because I have it on CD and my CDs are packed away. I have significantly more CDs than I do. I mean, I have a lot of vinyl, but I have a lot more CDs and they're packed away under my bed and they're not organized. And I think just because of that, and I just, I, I don't always like pulling something up on Amazon that I already own. Um, but yeah, easily one of my favorite albums ever. Um, from the moment I I've discovered it in the, in 86 or 87. And I can still remember sitting around in my bedroom with my friend, Pat Fry, trying to pick out the melody of ripple on my guitar. I just, this album just hit me right where it counts. I love this album. So yeah, double five for me. All right. Thank you, Tony. We have a recommendation tonight. I can't believe you forgot that you have a recommendation. <laughs> I actually do have a recommendation. So uh, while listening to this album, I went up on the intrawebs and I tried to look for a documentary on the Grateful Dead because surprisingly, I, you know, I don't know that much about the Grateful Dead in general. But there is a six-part documentary up on Amazon uh, video, I think you can get it free with Amazon Prime. Call, uh, just called "Long Strange Trip," and it is uh, a six, like I said, a six-part uh, episode on the Grateful Dead, taking them through their whole career up until uh, Jerry Garcia's death in in 1995. It's pretty fascinating. If you're looking for like a, a chronology of the band, a timeline of the band, that's probably not the the thing that, that you're looking for, but it, it goes through various aspects of the band. I believe chap, uh, episode four or episode five is about the deadhead culture. And that one's one of the most fascinating um, uh, episodes. But it's a it's a very it's very well done. Again, it's uh produced by Martin Scorsese, so you know that it's not gonna be um it's not gonna be that bad. So I highly recommend it. Okay, so that's uh our look at American Beauty by the Grateful Dead. Let us know what you think about that album or our review of that album on our website, tappingvinyl.com. And reminder, you'll find all sorts of good stuff up there. We're updating it um, almost daily. So you almost, you'll always find something new up there, including links to past episodes and um, ways to get in contact with us. You can also reach us via Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. 
and we have a Facebook group page as well. Next week, we're going to be looking at an album by a band from Ireland, the one of the founders of the Irish Celtic punk movement, the Pogues, and their album, If I Should Fall from the Grace of God. I should fall from grace of God We're no doctor can relieve me If I'm buried beneath the sun But the angels won't see Let me go, boys, let me go, boys Let me go down in the mud It's all a drag Our host, Doug Cooper Our co-host, Tony Slagle And me, your humble producer Jonathan J.M. Rowe and This is Vinyl Tap Where all the podcasts go to 11 And reminding you, it's been a long, strange trip.